Colin Williams. And I'm Ian Rowlands. And welcome to Beneath the Stream, a podcast about the human experience in the non-human world. Ian, we're on the venerable Hampstead Heath in London, which during its history must have uh, played host to medieval hunts, uh, riots, hangings, music and arts and culture. In fact, just a moment ago we heard and saw Kestrel. Um, we, we could hear the laughter of green woodpecker. I've seen sparrowhawk over the, the tops of the trees today. And there's some really, you know, walking through great ancient oak trees and uh, beech trees and tall limes. It's a lovely place. Yeah, and after all that excitement, it hosts us now. It does. <laughs> and we're not alone today um, because we are joined by Julian Hoffman. His debut book, The Small Heart of Things, um, was award-winning and he's just published Irreplaceable, which is a moving journey into the most threatened of our unique places and habitats. And he, on the way, meets people trying to save those places and, and animals. The marshes of Kent, the mountains of Greece, the links of the Balkans, the vultures of India, the six million square kilometres of coral reefs of Southeast Asia, the Gwent levels, urban meadows, prairie chickens and the habitats of the US Midwest, and like any great writer, the Fens, where he ends up. <laughs> Julian, welcome. Thank you. Thank you both. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Welcome to Beneath Stream. And firstly, congratulations on Irreplaceable. Thank you very, very much. It's only about two weeks that it's now out in the world, so it's the early days, but it feels good. It's okay. heading out on its own path now. I didn't even mention all of the places you visited mm. and all of the people you met, but it was a very long journey. So what was it that started you out on this journey? So about six, six and a half years ago, um, I was in London for a week. I'd booked a week in London because I intended to write an entirely different book to this one. And it doesn't even really matter what that book was about. But during that week, I received a message from a woman via Twitter who asked if I had time to go down to the Hoo Peninsula in North Kent to visit what was her home ground, but a place that was extraordinarily imperiled. I'd never heard of the Hoo Peninsula. I couldn't have found it for you on a map. Um, but I had a free day, and I thought perhaps there's some possibility to write a short blog post or an article about the threat that this place faced. And the threat turned out to be Europe's largest airport. And this plan, had it gone ahead, would have erased much of the Hoo Peninsula and its human communities and its natural communities from that very specific landscape. And that day in these sort of bristling April winds and snow slanting out of the north, I listened to the warm-hearted passion and voices of, of three people, residents. I felt that they were quite extraordinary, but they would all say that they were very ordinary people, very everyday people. But these were people who knew precisely what loss meant to them and to these wild communities. And over the course of a day where I watched these great skeins of geese smudging the horizon over the Thames and avocets and little egrets rising like the snow was falling uh, from these saline lagoons and little gullies and ponds and red shanks were firing from the marsh grasses, I, for the very first time in my life, understood something that previously had been statistical or numerical loss because so often we attempt to capture it through numbers and numbers are very very difficult for the human mind to really extract the full content of their meaning but suddenly that day i understood i understood that that 300,000 birds winter around the estuary and all those 300,000 would be threatened by incoming aircraft and the infrastructure that would be assembled for this airport and i took the train back to london to st pancras that afternoon 
and I realized that a very different book had to be written. And so the book that I'd been researching for the first days of that week was pitched in the bin, and this one, Irreplaceable, emerged in its, in, in, in its, in its wake, as it were, because it felt like a really the necessary book um, in order to respond to the type of loss that these people were desperately fighting to avert. Mm. Uh, you weren't alone on this journey. You, uh, you're anything but alone. There are moments in the book where you have quiet reflection, but for the most part, you are alongside these people yes. who, who feel this. And, and the other um, thing that struck me, and these two things are related for me, is that you use the word place. Mm-hmm. And I think lots of us glibly use the word place. Mm-hmm. But uh, early on in your book, you, you, you set forward an argument um, that... Uh, that locations become places mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. of those people and because of the, the the souls and hearts of those people and the affection they have for those places. Yeah, precisely. I think place is, is really the essence of the book. And here we are in wonderful Hampstead Heath. And, and Ian and I noticed that there was a kestrel scything low over the, the grasses here just a few minutes ago. But of course, there are also people walking dogs and some children have been going past and older people just wandering and talking. And this is an extraordinary place, and there's a parakeet that just called in the background, you know, adding its own inflection to this to this venerable place that you you described it as. And this has become a, a place of great affection because of the many crisscrossings of, of people's lives that are sort of embedded on the surface of it, and a- anywhere can be, become a place. And I think that the closest, it's really difficult to define place, but I think the closest that anyone I know has come to define it is, is the artist Alan Gusov, an American artist. And he, he once said that the catalyst that converts any physical location into a place is the process of experiencing deeply. And he, he then went on to say that, that any environment can become a place once it's claimed by feelings. And this is a really classic example, I think. You know, you can see London spilling away uh, beneath us here. But from this rise, there's... Uh, it holds its own extraordinary vibrant history um, you know from the swimming baths that are here and all the stories of people like John Keats visiting Hampstead Heath it's interwoven and entwined with the human uh, inflections that make place so dramatically important and with this book what I wanted to do was to enable the human voice to be told to sorry to be heard uh, within these stories um, because ultimately, we are part of the natural world, of course, and attempting to find our way through the great damage that we as a species have inflicted uh, upon the earth and in general requires us to, to recalibrate those relationships. And at this time, a time, I suppose, when so much nature writing or writing about the natural world is becoming of necessity archival, a sort of record of remembered things that bears witness to continual disappearances. I wanted to go in search of those voices of resistance and those individuals and communities that were effectively arguing for a very different measure of well-being and who were seeking to protect and preserve places from the tiny to the vast uh, with all of their passion and all of their resources because it, it meant the world to them and for some people it could be Hampstead Heath and for others it could be a meadow in the middle of Glasgow for others it could be this extraordinary and chromatic vista of a coral reef in the middle of the Indonesian archipelago but people were very much the pivot upon which all of these stories opened. 
so the the journey of the book really Julian is is the meeting of these people mm. with their with their inspiring stories but given your experience of meeting so many people what is it that you think enables some people to make that connection with the non-human world and for others it's still a blank canvas for them they're not reading it when i began this journey i had no idea what the final decision on any of these threatened places would be whether they would be with us into the future or whether they would simply become another uh, another name and a long inventory of losses. So I chose these places with an attempt to approach all of them equally, thereby um, sort of leveling out everybody's experience in a sense so that something that was tiny and largely unsung was of equal validity as those far greater and more totemic landscapes such as Mavrovo National Park in North Macedonia, to give just one example. Um, but wherever I went, there were sort of two things that recurred in all of these journeys that people knew what loss meant. They'd sort of, they felt it. They knew what was still on this side of loss, as it were, but they also knew the absence that would be on the other side. And of course, that absence isn't solely the absence of a place that they were attempting to protect, whether it was a meadow or a marshland, nor was it the wildlife that would go missing with the destruction of a, of a place, whether that destructive infrastructure was an airport, a motorway, a motorway services, a mine, all of these stories uh, had, were threatened by some form of development in a way. Um, but of course, fundamentally, it was the absence of those extraordinarily deep and abiding connections and relationships that humans have with the natural world. Because we often talk of a place going missing, but it's never solely a place. Because all of the wonder and well-being is also ripped from our lives. All of that connection uh, that's particularly important for, for children at a critical stage in their development. It's particularly important for people who struggle with, with mental health issues, um, often in urban environments. Um, you know, within the book itself, I really wanted to focus not solely on those places in a, in a sort of countryside, let's say, or a more rural landscape, but also within the heart of cities, because mm -hmm. the wild is not only nearby, wherever we happen to be, of, but of equal validity and importance. And so these were people who understood what those cumulative losses would mean. And in each and every case, whether it was an allotmenter or whether it was a campaigner, they had all effectively enlarged in an imaginative and an empathic sense the idea of home. So that home wasn't solely the bricks and mortar uh, bungalow or a flat or a caravan. It was actually a much more expressive and inclusive idea of home, whereby it included other communities and included um, other forms of life. It included water voles or common cranes or redwoods or hornbills, all of the multitudinous and patterned aspects of this vibrant world that we are extraordinarily privileged to inhabit and share with this great spectrum of species. So for those people, Home was something far, far more expansive, but ultimately inclusive. And I've kept going back to that idea, how we can further expand that in the way these people did, because I, I met these people wherever I went. And I think all too often we, we don't hear those stories. Much of the environmental discussion in a larger sense is guided by NGOs or fairly powerful environmental organizations, which are of 
absolute um, critical importance in, in shaping uh, the narratives themselves of what we need to be doing, where we need to be at, and what we stand to lose. But equally, we need to listen to those everyday um, encounters, those everyday stories of people who may be nurses and teachers and soldiers and cabbies and bus drivers. And I met so many of these people whose understanding of the natural world was as nuanced and rich uh, and fundamental as any ecologist or conservationist that I've ever met in my life. And so I wanted to allow those stories to rise to the surface as well. section of the book it's a chapter called the sacred reaches and I think I might just preface it uh, very briefly to give an idea of where we're at we're at the rather astonishing uh, Greek Orthodox monasteries called Meteora um, uh, on the western side of the country not all that far south of where I happen to live actually but these monasteries are perched on these extraordinary plinths of stone that emerged out of all of these geological events in the region's past. And it's a landscape of remarkable splendor, but often stark beauty as well. And it's almost indescribable. And for people of the past, they saw this landscape, saw something in this landscape that was akin to their spiritual aspirations and proceeded to build 24 monasteries on the tops of these plinths and pillars of stone and I'll pick up the story from that point. One afternoon I found a path that swung clear of the monasteries across a hill of burnished grasses smouldering golden under the sun. A succession of old and knowing tortoises kept me company on the way. I walked out along piers of dark stone, looking across the distant plain shimmering in haze. I passed the ruins of earlier hermitages and monastic cells, their long abandoned shells clinging to the edge of canyons like bats. Alpine swifts, peerless in their artful swirl about the high crags, danced at the tapered edge of the sky, and antlions flared from the grasses like blown glass, the translucent wings lifting and spinning, glittering helicopters of light. For all that we rightly revere the stupefying monasteries of Meteora, there is something equally wondrous, extraordinary and enlarging about the living world around us. It is replete with marvels. To encounter those antlions, alpine swifts and tortoises as they followed their own paths through that beckoning landscape was no less exalting an experience for me than seeing the hermitages and monasteries. While not, strictly speaking, a religious man, it's the natural world that brings me closest to expressions of the spiritual. Something as simple as standing in a vast prairie landscape, squeezed small between endless seas of grass and sky, while meadowlarks sing from the wind-murmuring bluestem, can be numinous in its overwhelming effects. And while I can attempt to describe such deeply felt sensations, there are no words I know of in any combination or sequence available to me that can adequately compress their totality into language. These are experiences born essentially of mystery, 
when the porous border between human and non-human lets in light, allowing an acquaintance with the impalpable to take place. Others might describe such resonances as wonder, awe, or even the divine, but at the heart of all these human words is found a reverence or great respect for things outside of ourselves. If we were to accord the living world the same veneration that we reserve for human monuments to the sacred, we would inhabit a more enriching creation, a more vibrant, mysterious, and potentially spiritual realm. So the way you spoke, really, June, had a, a sense of almost a, what you might think of as an indigenous relationship with the natural world. Would you would you say that that's still inherent in people, and somehow it's driven out? Some people still have it. Uh, is it a a relationship that we can all rekindle? I think I think almost certainly it's a relationship that we can rekindle in the sense that we often talk of being divorced from the natural world, but I think we sh there should be more active emphasis on that verb at the heart of it, being divorced, because we are being divorced. And so many of the stories that I encountered through, through the use of power, whether it's political or economic, politicians, developers, banks, large financial institutions, corporations, they wish to, well, I will use the word steal, really, these places of vital, natural, and cultural importance to local communities, because they saw them as providing uh, economic opportunities. And so uh, there's obviously a whole range of issues from digital technology to education systems that we could also explore around the idea of engagement and detachment. But one thing that became really apparent to me was that we are literally being detached mm -hmm. as well. Um, in the name of a, of a neoliberal system that has inflected this landscape with uh, a sort of economic foundation rather than anything else. And it was those other measures of well-being that I wanted to tap into, whether they're emotional, psychological, the wonder, the well-being, all of those rich composite relationships that we have with a place and the wild world. But of course, they are, they are considered to be of less value within a system that sees consumption, consumerism, and infinite economic growth as essentially the be-all and end-all of, of our stay on this planet. What was your response to that? Because it's actually terribly pressured, isn't it? Hearing story after mm. story of loss, experiencing it both directly and vicariously mm. through the people that you, you spoke with, and then you have to live with that inside your being. Uh, how do you deal with that? How do you retain a sense of optimism amongst that? Some places that I'd earmarked as being potentially good uh, subjects for the book vanished or destroyed is perhaps more accurate before I could even reach them. So while I made plans to travel to them, they were already wiped from the face of the earth before I could get there. So they exist solely as sort of memorials. So I've seen a lot of disappearance and I've seen a, a lot of grief and I've shared some of that with people who I got to know quite well in many occasions. Some of these places, particularly um, the allotments in Watford that I write about in the marsh country of the Hu Peninsula, uh, in the Thames Estuary, I return to them time and time again to really sort of 
go as deep as I could in their stories, the connection of these people in these places. So I shared some of that, but through the ensuing six years from, from sort of day one, as it were, I can absolutely say with complete honesty that it has been the most joyous experience of my professional life. Hmm. Because amidst those losses, I've also seen the extraordinary resilience of human community. I've seen the remarkable depths that often ordinary people will go to to protect and preserve something of vital importance. I've seen the kind of abundance of vibrancy and complexity and beauty and often the tiniest of places in our midst. I've seen that resistance to loss is not only possible but can be transformational in character. So while there has been grief and there has been a process of coming to terms with that, there's also been an extraordinary reservoir of possibility that I've managed to find myself within, not through my own doing, but being able to listen to the stories of these people up and down this country uh, and in many other parts of the world, that out there there are extraordinary actions being undertaken right now, right this very minute, and not solely here in London, but absolutely everywhere, and it fans out. But what made those um, actions really fundamental, I think, to the stories was that the people that I met were practicing something that I've come to term radical hopefulness. Because I think hope is a word that we often bandy about. We use it, we, we might use it on almost a daily basis. But it's, it's often quite passive in character. It's often lacking any sense of, of agency. It's, it's quite wishy-washy, or it can be. And yet the type of hope, this radical hopefulness that I saw people carrying out, carrying with them in a way, was active and it was determined and it was energized and it was real. And it meant not simply thinking about something or dwelling upon something, though that may be of importance, but going out, digging in, doing. And that really made me aware how important that transformational shift from the passive to the active. And it, it can change a single four-letter word like hope into something extraordinarily dynamic. That's splendid. And I just wanted to follow up on saying, and the process of you as a writer, documenting that for those people, do you think that was significant for them? I think it was. I think that they, it, it did give many of their campaigns a sense that they were being noticed, that there was someone out there. I don't take any personal credit for it. I think for them it was just a, a sense that our story is, is perhaps reaching further than we imagined it would. And it's been extraordinarily uplifting for me to see subsequently how many of those stories have made the national media now. The Gwent Levels in Wales has been, uh, been one of the really important recent cases and uh, a very positive one. And the, the Welsh First Minister, in response to an extraordinary campaign that brought together ecologists, but also local people who worked in pubs and cafes and, and custom car body workshops. They all galvanized this yeah. indelible connection to this remarkable part of the world, the Gwent Levels. And, and so, so you mentioned the Gwent Levels mm. there, and obviously at the time of recording was just a few weeks ago where the Welsh Government Absolutely. announced their rejection of the plan to, for the M4 motorway extension to go right, right through the Gwent Levels. Can you put into words how you felt, e either in yourself when that was announced, or how you felt for the people who had been campaigning for for that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We, we 
tried to wait as long as we could in the publication schedule <laughs> because I've been told by people that I'd worked with and had interviewed that the decision was imminent. Um, we waited as long as we could, and we finally had to go to press, and I think we missed it by about 10 days. But I'll make sure that the story is updated um, in the paperback edition. The Gwent Levels is this absolutely magical place, and it's, it's on the Severn Estuary in, in southeast Wales. And it's this landscape that is almost entirely um, human-shaped and sculpted, and it's been, um, it's, it's been sort of reclaimed from the sea, and it's riven with these hundreds and hundreds of miles of little narrow waterways, many of them medieval in origin, and some of them actually built by monks, monks that were often attached to places like Tintern Abbey that Wordsworth wrote about, and these monks would, would drop down from the abbey onto a grange farm that they held on the Gwent levels and um, tended to these reens, and the reens enabled a sort of agricultural uh, landscape of grazing to emerge. But what's extraordinary is that each and every single reen, which is the Welsh word for these watery ditches, is subtly different in character. Its gradient might be a little bit different, it might be slightly deeper, or it might be a little bit more sloped. And so it has enabled an entirely different world to emerge in each and every reen. So the aquatic invertebrate communities um, is just absolutely remarkably unique in each and every one. And because of this uniqueness, because of this irreplaceability, uh, the Gwent levels are supposedly protected as a set of eight adjoining triple SI sites of scientific, special scientific uh, interest. Yet that didn't prevent the Welsh government from proposing to lay 14 miles of six-lane motorway through their heart. And this is a battle that's been going on a very, very long time, and, and the most recent phase was you know, over the last several years, but it actually dates back over the past couple of decades. And when the Welsh First Minister announced his final decision just a few weeks ago, it was in response to a public inquiry in which the inspector from the inquiry had recommended against all of the environmental submissions, all of the submissions about um, human welfare and all the submissions from the Future Generations Commissioner because well, the, the Welsh government implemented a couple of years ago an extraordinarily progressive piece of legislation called the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act which was meant to look at issues of the environment when considering future generations living in Wales. But it seemed to be irrelevant when considering the road. Because as, as so often the case, the argument of overriding economic interest outweighs everything else. However, the First Minister, Mark Drakeford, stood up and announced, in response to the inquiry, that he wouldn't proceed with the road building scheme and what was really remarkable about his response and I see it as sort of another opening of a window onto a sort of view of possibility because A he said that he didn't believe that the finances stood up despite the inquiry saying that uh, the road should go ahead but what was more important was that he said even if the finances were true and we could afford this he wouldn't want to build on the Gwent levels because A, their cultural and historic value, and B, because other species dwell there. And for one of the highest positions in this nation, to hear somebody like that say, sort of talk about other species was, was groundbreaking. 
really, in light of all of the influence and all of the power underpinning um, inquiries and decisions and the lobbying that takes part on behalf of big business. But somebody said other species dwell there. And I thought that was a profoundly important moment uh, in, in, in Welsh politics and perhaps in the, in the wider nation's future and its relationship to the natural world. You mentioned earlier, and you write in your book that, uh, that well, a, a little quote. You said we have tended towards the totemic in our cultural appreciation of animals, and I wanted to suggest whether it's the same with places. Um, that, as you say, somebody's not going to think so hard about the the 1.4 hectares of of urban meadow in in, in Glasgow um, as much as they are about the sweeping mountains of the Cairngorms mm, or, or these all these huge landscapes. Absolutely, I think our relationship to to wild animals is almost exactly the same as it is to to wild places in the sense that those creatures of our greater affection, whether they be butterflies or polar bears or tigers they they leave aside some of those smaller insects they leave aside earthworms and they leave aside um, bacteria and all those other you know things that are fundamental to to the whole great spectrum of the natural world. And places is no different. Um, marshlands are often looked at with a, a kind of complete indifference uh, all too often. They're, they're often viewed as being sort of dank and malarial in the past and dim and dreary. And yet to be down on the Hu Peninsula, the marsh country of the North Kent marshes, uh, on a June's day is absolutely glittering with light and this extraordinary arch of the sky overhead and you know you've got the, the, the so many species lifting from these waving marsh grasses and it feels like a sort of equivalent of the great american prairies only it's 30 miles from from london um and yet those are places that that tend to be unsung and when you talk about in, in an urban context small meadows or allotments we we talk about 1.4 uh, square hectares as the meadow in glasgow is but what does that mean when we ask the question of the depth of a place? What does it span within the life of a single individual or the life of a community? Because that's far, far harder to measure. And that was part of the reason why I tried to treat these places equally. If I'm really honest, what I tried to do was to simply follow children because I think children are the great guides to attention and perceptiveness because a small fairly undistinguished patch of grasses here we might walk by as though it's it's not really anything at all but a child can find a whole world of possibility in there and I still see this despite all the sort of technological changes that that happens in my part of the world as much as it does in this part of the world I still see children engaging with tiny places because they're almost I think um galaxies in a way and they'll watch whatever insect life is there and it's profoundly important to them i sometimes argue or think i suppose that the the, the feather of an egret is as important to a child as the egret itself because their their potential for understanding the depth of 
any single creature is far greater in an imaginative sense. They practice what I would describe as an equality of interest. Everything's sort of equal. And so I wanted to utilize um, something that I obviously would have known myself when I was very, 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 very young, but which we all to some degree lose, or we tend to lose as we, we grow older, what the American writer Jim Harrison calls the luminosity of what is always there. We somehow seem to lose that as we sort of age and grow into ourselves as adults and we lift our heads rather than looking down at these small patches of life. We look out at the greater horizons and we think in um, you know, we often look at the sort of vista as being important when actually the real vital stuff is far smaller and far closer to home than, than we often see it. But children are acutely attuned to that, I think. And so those places, um, regardless of their size, they're of equal importance. Mm. It's interesting that you went on to Chippewa, because that was really going to be my next question, oh, which, right. which, was, which was because you talk about that immediacy mm. of the connection that children have to mm. sort of the natural world. And I wondered not just what you experienced, and I'm interested with the, the children that you met, but also can you go back and, and remember what it was for yourself as a child, that that connection that you had and what sparked it and, and, and what what remains still in your memory yeah, of that immediacy? Yeah. It's really interesting because it's obviously it's very, very difficult to remember what one's, let's say, the psychological underpinning of that connection. Um, might have been what I remember I grew up in a in a suburb in southern Ontario um, I grew up in that classic part of the North American landscape where uh, new roads and subdivisions have borrowed the names of the places that they obliterated so it could be Oak Terrace and there's not an oak to be seen or it could be Meadow Drive and you've got to go an hour to find a meadow. And so strangely in the naming of the suburbs that I grew up, these quite, um, the, these places of great similarity, you went from one suburb to the next and you could almost be on this sort of repeating loop as it were. But within the Lowe's landscapes, there were always, always these little corners and these nooks and crannies that my brother and I, my brother's two years younger than me, we, we were allowed to explore as though it were our entire kingdoms that we inhabited. And, but they were just little slivers. They were little slivers of leftover land from, um, from development. But within those slivers, we, we discovered you know, we were kings because there was this whole extraordinarily vibrant world out there and there were garter snakes and butterflies and birds and sunlight and toads and frogs and all of these things made up our days, those sort of long summer days of sunshine and, and frivolity often. And when I go back in memory, one of the things that occurs to me is that as a child, and I suspect this is true for many children and not just my through my own recollection, I had very little sense of self-consciousness in their way that we often, we often, in a cultural sense, become hesitant to do certain things or reluctant to do things out of fear of looking silly or daft or what our peers might think. It could be climbing this tree and you think, well, I'm 50, almost 50 years old now, should I climb? But for children, that's not part of the equation. That's a tree. I can climb that, so I'll do that. And I think that's one of the key things, that real lack of self-consciousness or uh, that sensibility that, you know, am I just making a bit of an ass of myself? 
And, you know, you so you could crawl around and you could wriggle around and you could get under that hedge there. And I think that's part of it in a way, or at least in an imaginative sense, that actually to be free, to be free in a sense to do what you feel like doing when you're, you're out in a landscape like this. And if it's to climb that tree, we'll climb that tree. I like it, it's really because my, my mother-in-law is 90 now and, and she's gone back and completely lost all those inhibitions. Yeah. So as you described, I was thinking as you described, she would, she would poke in the grass nest, you would say, because that stone, it, it looks like a face, mm-hmm. you know, in the way mm-hmm. that we would have mm-hmm. done as children. Mm-hmm. And then somehow mm-hmm. there's a great span of intervening years when most yeah. people lose that. Perhaps we do, towards the end of our lives, regain some of that sort of innocence in, in our relationships. Yeah. I haven't got to that point in my life yet, but it does seem through conversations with friends who are older uh, and, you know, watching some of my loved ones reach that um, stage in their lives that that could be a closing chapter that is it is not so dissimilar from childhood in a sense struck by when I was reading Irreplaceable was um, the events which unlocked that for people mm. and the events uh, there may have been a moment or a feeling or as you say a vista or a view um, that made us remember and unlock that in mm. our in our mm. muscle memory and in our psychological memory once again I, I think when you were writing about the Hoo Peninsula there was there was someone there who wasn't local to the area but had moved in I think even just shortly after they retired maybe and and had been taken by surprise uh, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. how the landscape had entered their heart and soul. And I come from the fens of, of Norfolk and yeah. Lincolnshire and Cambridgeshire. And so since leaving, I'm used to people uh, writing off that as a, as a barren agricultural wasteland. And if, yeah. and if not that, a place where madmen and anchorites yes, um, yes. Uh, uh, live. But the fact is that we weren't that far from the seawall and the, and the salt marsh beyond mm. And the fact is that's still the place where I saw my first marsh harrier. It's still the place where I had my first kiss. And all of those things make that a place that remains with me. And almost all of my other experience of landscape is as it is um, because of the context of that one place. Everything is a comparison um, to that now. and, And you sum that up beautifully at one point where you say that place was the shore upon which formative experiences made landfall. Mm, thank you, thank you. Um, there, there's a line by the, the Czech uh, writer Vaclav Cilek in, at one point in an essay of his, he says that a place in the landscape corresponds to a place in the heart. And this was a line that sort of I carried with me through many of these journeys because it seemed to be echoed in the responses that so many people shared with me. Um, and one of the ones that was very early on in the research was um, a man called called George on the Who Peninsula. And I'd asked him if he'd had much of a connection to the natural world because now he was actively trying to stop uh, this airport being built over much of the Who Peninsula. And he, he said, no, he hadn't. And I said, well, what, what changed things for you? He said, it was just one day that I went down to the lagoons and there were these two little egrets, and they were engaged in a courtship display. And he says, it, for me, was like being on the Serengeti. 
And here we are in the North Kent Marshes, a place that I'd never heard of at the time. He then went on to say, back then there were still dumped and abandoned cars around the lagoons. There aren't any more, but at the time. And yet there was still amidst this damaged landscape an encounter that recollected for him something that would be found on the plains of Africa, this great, vast, totemic landscape. And I thought that was a really profound thing to engage with in a, in, in a landscape, to recognize in your home and a, a landscape that had largely been, uh, been dismissed by many people, both culturally and imaginatively and artistically, for so long, despite Charles Dickens, of course, setting great expectations there. Mm. It still was seen as this dark and dreary place, and yet for this, this man called George, it was akin to the Serengeti because of these two brilliant white birds in display, you know, on a, summer, on a summer's morn. That leads nicely in, Julian, because really, what a gift you have, what a talent, what a exquisite prose, and the, the, the patterns, the metaphors, the links, the connections, the way that you see the world is, uh, I'm deeply envious. So I really, I guess, uh, following Thank on you. from that, we're, a great deal <laughs> we're, on a, we're on the heath that had a, a history of duels in the mm. 18th century so I'm going to metaphorically have a duel with you and say the writer David Abraham says that sometimes language can be a barrier for us mm. between us and the natural world what's your response to that it's really interesting so this is a you know this is a debate and a discussion that has gone on for a very long time um, I see it in slightly different I would see it in a slightly different way from David though I, I'm a great admirer of his work I think on one level that it language can certainly be a barrier um, in the sense that by always trying to mediate an experience are we trying to put it inside a box for example or are we trying to to rule over it to look at it strictly through that lens of, yeah. of language and that can be true um, and of course by doing that we we do perhaps lessen the the sort of vivacity of uh, of a child's engagement, which is largely pre-verbal in a sense, um, and which is really engaged with the thisness of things. But there is another level to that argument, and this is where, at the point at which I would probably strike out in a slightly different path from David, that language is also a way into knowing and deepening a set of relationships. Um, the, the great writer and alpinist Nan Shepherd, I think probably described it best when she says a thing to be known grows with the knowing because while I can admire the flight of a bird that sort of graceful sweep through the sky the way it glitters over the coast it's only when I give it the name of arctic tern through utilizing language that I can access this extraordinary migratory journey that it makes that for me, deepens the mystery even further and deepens the wonder and the well-being that the Arctic tern lives in the light of two summers. It makes the longest migratory journey of any species on this planet by tracking between the poles. But without language, without that name, I don't have access to that story. And stories are of profound importance. For me, they are the engines of connection. And I think that we are entering a stage, well, we're not just entering, we're right in the midst of it, where stories are going to become ever more critical to navigating this extremely difficult time in, 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 in human history when we're facing, or we need to face, 
um, the sixth extinction, climate change. Stories are going to become ever more important in order to enlarge upon that empathy which I discovered uh, in so many communities in so many different parts of the world. Stories are going to be critical to coming to terms with what we stand to lose, but also what we still have. And that's at the point where I think language is going to be really crucial. So while David makes a very good point, I also think that there are two ways into wonder. And both of those can play a really important and critical role in moving forwards into the future. Well, Julian, I think if we and others can tell those stories with half of your eloquence, um, the world will be a better place, and, and I truly mean this, and I think with the publication of Irreplaceable, you've, uh, you're cementing your place as one of um, the finest, finest writers working in the English language today. Thank you so much for joining us, Julian Hoffman. Thank you very much. It's been a real privilege. <laughs> Kestrel overhead just landing in the tree. <laughs> I think for this um, final reading, I should just say that we are... Uh, in the Indonesian archipelago uh, on an island called Bangka Island, a very, very small island that was supposedly protected because of its size under Indonesian law. But there was an attempt to mine this island for iron ore. And one of the things that would have been profoundly threatened um, by this mine is not only the human communities that dwell on the island and not only the mangroves that encircle the island but also the extraordinary and complex coral reef that rings the whole place. Seasway, sundrift, waterlight, schools of silver fish spilling like shimmering silt through a river, Wave shadows mirrored and rippling across an undulating bed of soft corals. The tug of the sea fanning a million tiny polyps like meadow grasses in a summer breeze. Bodies banded like wasps. Moorish idols glided and glimmered, each one trailing a snaking white streamer from its dorsal fin. A blue tang, lapis and lemon yellow, gleamed beneath me. Dazzling and luminous hues rose to either side, built up into dense, overlapping neighbourhoods of breathing beings, creating a fantastical underwater city where both architecture and residents are alive. I floated over whole seascapes of bewildering coral shapes, magenta rosettes, delicately abraded with crystalline stems, a suite of circular discs like an array of radio telescope dishes scanning deep space each one delineated by radial slices resembling the rays of the sun, a fuchsia pillow pitted with the crater holes of an elaborate sponge, multi-chambered and tenanted by small shining fish striped blood orange and cream, an encrustation of amethyst plates stippled with countless pale pillars, the coral reef rippled and dipped with long valleys and hidden glades, their sweeping vistas broken by steep, crenellated bluffs, where domino damselfish, black and white and striking, danced on the lip of the crevasse without any fear of falling. I swam through a shallow gorge that opened onto a vista of stag coral, as if all the deer antlers mounted on the walls of country estates had been piled together at the bottom of the sea. From deep wells of water fluttered flights of butterfly fish, large and buoyant, but as laterally thin as their namesakes' wings, lavishly done up in summer tints, lemon, tangerine, 
an apricot. The arms of large sea stars, cornflower blue and luxuriously splayed across coral beds, quivered in the current. An intense sense of compression was attached to this trance-like realm, its immersion in water magnifying it to such a luminous and limpid degree that each of its components was revealed as a complex miniature world, intricately beautiful in both design and behaviour. A mere metre or two of reef summoned a whole continent of terrestrial features to mind. The bleached and stony pieces of coral that the girls on the breakwater had played with were bore little resemblance to their living kin, having washed up as just the hard grey skeletons of their former selves. Underwater, in a veil of light, the coral reef rose and stretched like a kingdom of unimpeachable pageantry, invested with mobility, colour and lucency. It was like dropping into a psychedelic dream, some mind-altering fantasy of forms so stupefying as to feel suspended not solely in water, but within the current of a Baroque imagination. <laughs>